Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am your host, Michael Braithwaite, and I hail from the wonderful organization, Blue Door, uh, an organization in the north of the GTA, York region, doing wonderful work. But over 120 people do wonderful work in the areas of housing, health, and employment for our most vulnerable. We do this in partnership with our good friends at the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Check out the work they're doing at caeh.ca. Lots of training and other opportunities there for your organization, but also a giant conference that they put on annually this year in Halifax. Uh, early bird pricing, go and sign up today. I, I urge you to do so. It's a wonderful conference with great speakers uh, and they do so much more. Check them out at caeh.ca. If you want to see the wonderful work or support the work we do at Blue Door, the life-saving and impactful work, go to bluedoor.ca. Uh, listen, I'm so excited for today's podcast. I'm always excited, let's face it. But today, really, really cool. We have a panel. So coming up um, in Toronto, our largest city, we have, for the first time in a long time, probably since 2014, we have a race for mayor that's very competitive, very important. This wasn't supposed to happen. It came with a sudden resignation of John Tory, uh, who had just won a mandate earlier in the fall. Uh, another, and when he was, say, his final mandate, that was cut short. He resigned. And so now we have 102 people registered to take that job. Um, and as you'll hear one of our candidates in this conversation, not our candidates, sorry, our guests, talk about uh, a real opportunity to do something cool because you actually could get voted in with a pretty small percentage of, uh, of voters, right, because of the number of people um, that are, are running this campaign. So we brought together a really, really awesome panel. We have John Fox from Robin's Appleby, a frequent uh, flyer on this podcast. John is a lawyer and partner a housing lawyer and a partner at Robbins Appleby. Uh, great insight, incredible conversations. We have Ian Underwood, who is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity, GTA. Uh, Ian is, it's not, you know, your, your, you say it's not your parents' uh, Habitat. They have always done great work, but Ian has taken that organization to new levels and really understands the landscape. We have Andrew McKenzie, the Director of Operations at Anfa. Uh, Andrew, during this podcast, talks uh, so much about community and investing in people. And it's not just about housing, but it's in, about investing in people. Uh, he adds incredible insight into the conversation. And finally, we have uh, Diana Chan McNally. Diana is a fierce advocate for unhoused people, for the homeless uh, in Toronto. She speaks so well. Uh, and she's been working on the front lines for years, talks about that work on the front lines and why now she's unable to do it due to funding ending. Uh, and now she's doing something else, but continues to advocate and support her, her peers. But it's a wonderful conversation. We ask each uh, each person today that came on with the theme of uh, if you were running for mayor, what would your housing platform be? Because they have such incredible insight into what are the solutions around uh, housing and homelessness. And we get some great answers. You don't want to miss this podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, we heard all sorts of different themes. We've talked about we need more money. We have to be not afraid maybe of raising taxes a little bit if people understood where that went. John Fox talks about, hey, we have to not be afraid to make some mistakes, to give our staff that leeway uh, at the city to make some mistakes, to try new and bold things. We have to do that. Diana talks about looking at our public spaces and making sure that housing is a priority uh, when we talk about the use of those public spaces. It's a great, great conversation with some brilliant and impactful people you don't want to miss it. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do. Let's take a listen. 
another great panel of guests today on On the Way Home. Uh, so glad to have you all here. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to jump right in. We ask the same question to everyone who comes on the show because it's a little different, it's a little personal. It can change for you time to time like it does for people. And that is, what does home mean to you? And John, we're going to start with you. And we're going to go to Andrew, Ian, and then we're going to have Diana because I bet you she has the best answer to wrap it up. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll add something to my, my usual answer, which is a home to me is a safe, secure place to live and recharge but i will add that it is a safe secure place to live and recharge that does not cost everything you own to either buy or rent uh for me some, yeah and for me similar to john it's, it's just a place and I, i'll add i'll add to john said it's because i think it's those things and we'll all probably say those things uh, along the line but for me it's the place where i can be with my family and and, and also learn and grow i mean home to me was bigger than the four walls I lived in when I grew up and where I am now, it's that community around me. So for me, it's it's those things that John mentioned, but my family is also there. I love the recharge aspect and I love the community aspect for me. That's what home is to me. Thanks, Andrew. Ian. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think my uh, sense of home has really uh, evolved in the 10 years that I've been at Habitat for Humanity because I hear families we work with talking about it so much and what it means to them. and. And so, you know, on that list are some of the things John and Andrew has already said, that theme of recharging and home is a, a base from which you can kind of plan and get ready for your next day. It's a place from which you can dream and have aspirations, a place you can recharge, you know, as well as just the notion of it, and it, it's a sanctuary. And I, you know, I contrast that with what some families that we work with talk about what it was like before they had a habitat home and that, you know, the notion of that those homes are a source of stress, stress about being able to afford it, stress as to whether the owner will decide to, you know, uh, sell the condo and you can't live there anymore. Um, and stress about are your kids going to make it home safely from school and are your kids going to be you know, subjected to kind of influences that you're really worried about as a parent. So the, the contrast of, you know, home is this is a place where we can plan, grow, become stronger, thrive, as opposed to home as a place that, that leaves people feeling it's holding them back. Thanks, Ian and Diana. I, I like all the answers that I've heard so far, but I think I'm going to add to that um, as someone who works in homelessness uh, in terms of housing. I think we have this concentration on home as being this brick and mortar structure, uh, when in reality, it often isn't that. And working with people who are unhoused, it's really about the sense of community, sense of belonging. Uh, and that can be either tied to a location or it can be tied to a community, to actual people. Um, so I think we have this really prescriptive idea of home that is really about the shelter that you're living in when it actually means all of the things that keep you safe and well. Uh, all of those different connections and in particular connections to, to people in community. Love what you're saying about community there. And, and listen, we've learned that from failure uh, in, in the work that, that I do and many others in that when we just focus on the structure, as you said, we put people at, at a home and they actually leave that shelter community. They sometimes end up back at the shelter because we haven't created a sense of community around them and community is so important to any uh, home. It's not really about the roof and four walls. So well said, uh, everyone. We want to learn, we have a great panel and, and all of you are doing tremendous work and impactful work in the community. We want to learn about you um, and about uh, 
two minutes or, or less. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your work, how you ended up here. I know it's a lot. Um, but we, this time, we're going to start with Diana, and then we'll go to Andrew, Ian, and then we'll end with John. Two minutes or less, huh? Okay. Um, I think as a millennial, like a lot of millennials, I've gone through a lot of career changes over time. And so I didn't actually start um, in homelessness, in activism, but rather uh, as a graphic designer. Uh, and then oddly into teaching design and art history. All my degrees are in this subject. None of my degrees or anything are in what I do now. Um, I have no background in public policy work. I have no real background in activism and advocacy, but I've ended up here uh, and I've ended up doing the work that I do because I understand that if we're going to lift uh, society up, we really have to start with the people who are the least resourced. Um, and if we can lift the platform for them, we can improve uh, life for everybody uh, who lives here. So I got into working with people who are unhoused for that reason. Um, I'm also someone who has experienced homelessness as a teenager, um, social services, children's aid. Uh, and so for me, I ran away from that for a long time, but have now embraced it. And that really informs how I think about this work and how we need to actually put a lot more humanity uh, into working with people who are unhoused. Thank you so much for sharing. Andrew. Yeah, no, for me, the, the journey was is quite interesting. And I mean, this is going to be the work I'm going to finish my career and I'll start there. But I started in the private sector, uh, you know, somewhere Diana, Diana, and I was doing a bunch of other things for a bunch of other companies that, you know, people on the podcast may not like, so I won't mention them by name. But um, I, I found myself somebody who was always looking at process and, and fixing things and making things work. And then I got a call, which I always tell my, my, my family that it was the best call I've ever gotten was from Toronto Community Housing. They said, hey, we want you to come and help us do some stuff over here. And, you know, it was one of those things that I didn't even think was in my career path because I was a private sector guy. And it was right up my wheelhouse. It was like what, what I wanted to do. And, and, you know, why it was so important to me to get that call was that it was, you know, when we're talking about home a moment ago, it's where I started my whole career. I'm a, I'm a community housing kid. I, I was raised in, in, that, in that environment where, you know, you know, I didn't know what community housing was until I was like five years old, you know, or six years older when I was on a school bus and somebody told me that, hey, you live over there, that's different than where we live. But for me, you know, going back and working in, in it as a professional and now working in the public sector, helping advocate for the community housing and nonprofit sector, it's the work that I want to do. So for me, it was a, it's kind of one of those full circle moments where now that I landed here, it's like, man, I don't want to leave here. And I know there's ways for us to get to those goals we want to get to. So that's a little bit about me and how I landed in, in, in what I'm doing now. But it's one of those things that, you know, I don't think I can turn my back on or, or be away from uh, in the rest of my my uh, my career. Although some of my family members might think, you know, go and do something different. But no, I love what I'm doing. Well, we're glad you made the, the, the change over to uh, the good side. Uh, and thanks, Michael. So, uh, yeah, my I'm I'm gonna, I think I'm, I'm going to talk about my journey in the context of I guess my journey with housing in the GTA. And so that story for me started as you know I was a little kid growing up in a farm in southwest Ontario, and we came to uh, Toronto once a year to visit our city relatives. And, you know, we always thought then, and this is growing up in the 70s, we thought of Toronto as a place that was incredibly expensive, that we could never, ever afford to live, uh, and that was pretty intimidating. So it wasn't really the plan that I would end up uh, spending most of my adult career in Toronto. And, uh, you know, through a, a series of happenstance, I ended up in Toronto. I also, like Andrew, uh, started in the private sector. And, the you know, the good fortune of when I was born, 
uh, and then starting a career in the private sector put me in a position to buy my own house uh, uh, in the 90s uh, in, in Toronto, again, thinking it was really, really expensive. And then fast forward to 2013, 10 years ago, when I had the opportunity to leave uh, what had become a career in the healthcare sector and come to Habitat for Humanity, I thought, you know, there were a whole bunch of reasons that I really wanted to be part of this housing story in this city that seemed so expensive. And I confess at the time, I thought, you know, Habitat for Humanity, I mean, focused on helping working families be homeowners did seem a bit strange to me to be lower income and be homeowners. And I couldn't quite figure out why that was so important. But the, as I got here and spending time, you know, it has left me feeling so passionate about, you know, that notion of creating opportunities for for families, not just to have, you know, a home, but a home that they have control over as owners. And that ability to take some of their, their mortgage and money and, and instead of paying rent, build build wealth. And, and yet I never would have predicted that 10 years after starting, home ownership would be, you know, two or three times as expensive and we'd actually be losing ground on the ability of, uh, of, of our young people, uh, of newcomers and of our racialized population to be able to access home ownership. So, you know, like Andrew, you know, I, I feel in this journey, I'm far from done and more passionate than ever around the importance of housing as a way to create the inclusion uh, and the kind of well-being and prosperity in this city that we all want. Very well said, and thanks, Ian. And I was just—I was telling Ian before we started uh, today that I was sitting in a meeting today, and uh, Mayor Richmond Hill said, uh, "Do you know this? Uh, do, do you know Ian from Habitat? I need to speak with her because I hear she's doing amazing new things with Habitat." And he said, "I, I absolutely do," and and was able to connect. But that's that's your influence being felt all over the GTA, Ian. So thank you. Uh, last but not least, John. Yeah, I'll stick with just two stories uh, about my journey. One, I'm a lawyer. I work at a firm called Robbins Appleby now, mostly in housing. And I just want to point out, because the way Diana started, that my undergraduate degree and my or my second degree actually is in law. So it is directly connected, thankfully, for all those who actually um, take my advice professionally. Uh, secondly, my, my journey in housing began when I, I gave a speech on the Confederation Bridge at a conference called Canada's Infrastructure Summit. And when I walked in, the room was packed, but that was because Derek Ballantyne and TCHC were in the room to give the Regent speech. He finished. Everybody left except me, the other guy who was presenting, and, uh, and uh, one other person in the room who waited too long and it was too rude to leave at that point in time. And uh, like many people in that space, I was pretty fascinated about what was going to happen. Uh, left that room, found Derek in the cafeteria, and started going at him for work uh, immediately. And have been lawyering and housing ever since. I spent seven years at TCHC itself as an in-house lawyer and as its VP of uh, development before coming back to private practice where I am today. Amazing. Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, and I know, too, you have such a passion uh, for this. And all of you do, and that's why you're here today. Uh, and we the big question that we want to chat about today is Toronto, Canada's biggest city, has a, an election coming up, an election that we didn't plan for um, uh, due to different <laughs> circumstances. Uh, we have, I believe, a last count, uh, over 100 people registered to run for mayor. There's, I think, less than 10 that, that really they're saying that are polling. In, in, and so 
it is uh, a very competitive for the first time in a long time, probably since uh, and I, I probably since 2014 uh, that we've had a real competitive race. And for the first time in a long time, as it should be, housing is top of mind for so many people. And then asking people, what is the plan? All the candidates, what is your plan? What would you do? And having all of you who are experts in your fields that speak to this all the time, that know uh, and feel uh, that, that housing need, uh, it's so great to have you on to answer this question. So what we want to do today, um, you know, there's lots of issues during this election, but housing is probably the biggest one. The question that we're putting to all of you to answer um, in about five minutes uh, or less, feel free. I know if you ever attend council meetings, they say you have five minutes. People always think they have to use all of it, uh, which is very painful when you're there for you know, hours and hours at a time. But feel free to use all of it. But if you don't, not a problem either. If you can sum it up in one, you're a superstar. But if you're running for mayor, what is your platform? What would it be? We'll start this time with Andrew, then we'll go to Diana. Uh, Ian, and then we'll end with John. Yeah, so Diana, I start with you. Diana. Oh, sorry, I messed up. That was me. Yeah. 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 We start with you. No, no worries. I was getting in there, and then I was like, "Okay, it's not me, but it's me." Okay, I'm back. Uh, um, no, 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 thanks, Michael. It's interesting, and, and you're, you're right. I mean, it's it's it it, it wasn't expected. We're we're kind of here, and and it's super competitive. So. Even even when the the announcement came out, I didn't think it was going to be this competitive. Um, I'm I'm a Torontonian, uh, born and raised. I, I, you, know, you know all that other stuff. So it, it matters to me what happens in this election, and it matters in general to the country of what happens in Toronto's election, quite frankly. Um, and for me, my my platform is based on the stuff that I've talked about uh, forever and ever. And when it came to my organization, I threw something out to my board about you know supporting social infrastructure, and they looked at me like, what is this guy talking about? We're talking about roads. We're talking about you know schools. I'm like, no, social infrastructure is supporting people and figuring out that thing and those things that support people. Because you know you don't have hospitals, you don't have roads, you don't have bridges, you don't have schools without people. Um, and in our in our space, just like we all preface with, housing is top of mind and it's probably the most important thing. And and you know when we went, what we went through what we went through over the last several years with the pandemic, it was the number one social determinant of health was having a place to live. So go home and stay home and you're going to be safe and, and well. Well, think about people along that lower end of the housing continuum. And you know, I'm doing a little bit of a thing like this, where maybe over here, you have, you know, home ownership and all those things that, you know, come with what Un said, uh, and I'm probably pushing your name and I'll, I'll get it right before the end of the podcast, I promise. But around generational wealth and, 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 and investing and all these other things, that's what home ownership actually is a start of. And it helps with that long-term security for families and people. But I'm focusing on that other side. And in my, if I was you know, running for mayor, I'd be focusing on that side because that's the side that needs the most help. And Danny, you said you need to you have everybody as part of society or no one's moving forward, right? And when I think about how my campaign will be structured, it'd really be about those the other end of the, the, the housing continuum. It's really from that community housing space to homelessness and from your own true ways to make sure people are getting involved and for me that's why i speak to social infrastructure it's not just about bricks and mortar it's not just about supply i know that we we've heard about that and we've heard about supply for the last couple of years especially when it comes down to you know what's happening at the province and i think it's part of the equation of the solution but when we're looking at it practically if i just have supply 
the worst predicament we could be in as a society is having supply and it's sitting there. So if you build, they will not just come. You have to build purposely. You have to have buildings for people and, and, and building and supporting people in the right ways. So when looking at it, I got to make sure that the layers of if you're coming out of homeless or experiencing homelessness, what's a transitional plan? And what's that plan to make sure that you can actually come out of that equation successfully and actually have somewhere where you can thrive? If I'm looking at people who are living in the community housing space, we're talking about affordability. It's become the most, I'll say it's the sexiest term in, in politics right now, affordable housing, right? And I, I, I broke this down to some people a little while ago. I said, your version of affordability is me getting my kids a house because I don't want them in my, in my basements or in, in their rooms for the next 20 years, right? My version of affordability is deep. So if the houses cost 10, you're talking seven, I want them at four. So there's ways of getting that done. And I think everybody has a hand in that. And that's why I'd be pitching investments from various levels, whether it be the federal government and the provincial government and municipalities. And notice I use the term investments because right now, for the last 30 years, we've been talking about funding. And there's a difference there. When people want to fund something, people think that they're just giving it away. It's almost like a charitable expense. When you're investing in something, there's an outcome to it. And I think if we can illustrate outcomes as a city, that's what people want to invest in. And I think there's ways of doing that properly. And, you know, when I think about the other side of the social infrastructure, it's ensuring that the housing that you're providing people, it comes with the right supports. So what do I need to make my situation better? What do I need to do to make me thrive? So whether it's, you know, supportive housing, even things like educational inserts, like, you know, if I'm thinking about ministries of education, why are we, why are we, you know, why are we don't, why don't we have wired internet? Why don't we have supported internet throughout all these places? Well, you know, I, I had a colleague of mine who was out in uh, the Netherlands. He's laughing at me. He's like, you know, Andrew, like we do everything from the, um, from, uh, from rent intake to maintenance to, you know, everybody's on Wi-Fi because that's just the way we want to get things done and society moves forward. But I think about those kids who live through a pandemic of, you know, surfing at, you know, Starbucks, there's ways of people investing in, in this sector which is, you know, surrounded by housing as the hub, no problem. But there's a lot of other social benefits that will come out of this where, you know, I think as a as a mayoral candidate, you got you got to get involved in. And I and I know I, I, I listen, I I just I just have a I have a paper we're about to release as my organization that's talking about, you know, all the different platforms and what everybody's about to do. A lot of it's retread, a lot of it's been done before, a lot of it's out there, you know. You know, you can you can call something this now, and you, you add another adjective or a verb to it, and you call it something different. It's exactly the same thing. It's what's the effect of what you're going to do underneath. And really, for me, my camp my campaign would be about so supporting social infrastructure and really talking about housing affordability is one thing, but how do you make everything around it work so that people can thrive? And and that's that's been my my mandate since I was a little kid. I mean, I, I've. I remember going downstairs to my to my uh, to my community to my community room and learning how to do arts and craft, play hockey, play basketball, and swim. So all those four things happen in a, in a community housing setting. Where right now I have neighbors and people in my community who do that in four different instances and pay four different fees for their kids to participate in that. Well, as a kid, that was all supported somehow through programming. So let's get back to some of that mentality to make sure people can can thrive. So for me. It's really about investing in social infrastructure. And when you do that, it's, it's really an, a, 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 a inevitable proposition because 
as a, as a as a politician, you can't escape that because at the end of the day, we're talking about people. We're not talking about money. We're not talking about anything else. It's like, do you want to invest in your constituents and your people? And if the answer is yes, here's how we'll get it done. So that's that's really it for me. Uh, it, it honestly, you probably heard you know four fifty something. I don't have a counter over here. Seconds of me talking about everything else but housing, because if you talk about people and how people thrive, but if the new base is housing you'll get the right investments because people need a place to live. And I mean, I, I took my, my whole five minutes on social infrastructure. Don't get me started on the fact that, you know, there's practical ways of getting this built. We need to have an immigration strategy and all these things. And at the end of the day, when people are coming to Canada, Toronto's gonna be high on their list of places they wanna land. And, you know, we're gonna have to figure out ways of supporting those people who will build the things. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but in my five minutes feel about, you know, what I would do if I was a mayor, It'd be it'd be really focusing and investing on the social infrastructure, not just the physical. Not worry about the potholes because you know if people aren't thriving. No one's driving on the roads anyways. Most roads would be well maintained. But if people are thriving, then we can figure out potholes. We can figure out taxes. We can figure out all those things to make sure that people are uh, getting a leg up in society. And once you know, I, I agree with the earlier statement. Once everybody's, it, it's all of us or none of us. And, and 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 you know, we've seen that in the last three years. So if it's, if it's going to be all of us, we've got to figure out ways to make sure all of us are, are included. So now that's it for me. I can go on for another 25 minutes, but you gave me five. So I'll stop it there. Love the passion. Thanks so much, Andrew. So social infrastructure, not potholes. We got you. Awesome. Thanks for that. Diana, we're going to go to you. I, I think I, I'm going to start with kind of this broad ideological premise, and it's really that public space is invaluable. And I'm going to start there and kind of branch out into different aspects of what that actually means. And so, you know, if I were a candidate, I'm not a candidate, I would never want to be a candidate. Who wants that job? I really don't know, but apparently people do, many people. Uh, now that said, talking about public space, the way that the city acts is that it is their private space that they monitor and they maintain. That is how they treat public space broadly within the city, certainly our parks. And that's not what public space actually is and not what it should be doing. Um, so I want to kind of change that and look at public space uh, really as some of our human rights can actually thrive, where we're actually supporting the public good, whatever that means and whatever the need actually happens to be. We can meet that within these lands and actually build what's needed at the time to support people. So right now we're in a housing crisis. That means opening up public lands for public builds, uh, which we aren't doing well uh, in the city of Toronto. And certainly if we look at the Housing Now program of our previous mayor, we haven't put a single shovel in the ground yet. That is disastrous as housing policy, and we actually must change. And if part of the reason why we haven't been able to act on housing, now, this is what city staff are saying, uh, is the fact that we're not actually able to acquire the materials uh, and the labor needed to build whatever projects are related to housing now, then we need to look at different strategies. And so we have a program at the city of Toronto, the Mira program, which is a multi-unit acquisition uh, or multi-unit residential acquisition program, uh, which is really looking not at starting from scratch and building new, but rather at acquiring properties and maintaining affordability by doing that, uh, so that they're entrusted to nonprofits, they're entrusted to the land trust, and we could be investing significantly more money into this kind of program, understanding that is a very quick way to get people housed now. Uh, and frankly, to keep their housing, there's often this disconnection when we're talking about housing and homelessness that we're always talking about, again, Andrew, you're saying this, supply, 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 uh, when really a huge aspect of that is keeping people in the housing they're in, 
do everything you can to make that happen. Now, a lot of that is guided at the provincial level. We've heard from a lot of candidates uh, that we should just continue to advocate for more money from Doug Ford and from Justin Trudeau. But the reality is we're not getting that money. We haven't been getting that money. And it's not a reliable strategy to continue to do this and say we can build housing, but only if we get funding from these other orders of government. It's just not happening. So we need to be proactive on how we're generating revenue within the city of Toronto. And that means actually raising taxes. It's unpopular, but we know that our taxation rate is lower than in other parts of the GTA. And it needs to happen in order to actually not just address things like uh, infrastructure, housing, for example, but really this giant budgetary uh, hole that we have lingering uh, due to the pandemic. So I'm not hearing a lot of good solutions from current candidates. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed is actually we need to start looking at our own revenue tools and be proactive about that. Now back to public lands, leveraging for public good. So again, uh, public build. Um, you could place bylaws uh, that protect rent control within units that are built on public land. That is something that the city could explore doing. Uh, John, maybe you have more information on how legally viable that is, uh, but it's a possible strategy. Um, I think we also need to look at public parks. We know that encampments are absolutely everywhere across the city and across this country more broadly. And just because they're less visible in our downtown public parks doesn't mean that they have gone anywhere. Uh, as somebody who is working with people who live in encampments, they're as prolific as they've ever been, if not more so. They're just more hidden uh, from the public eye. But that's still to say that we have lots of people who are in camps all over the city on public lands and they're still being removed. So instead of having this strategy of policing people without actually providing them with the resources we need. We, we need someone to put a moratorium on evicting people who live in encampments, understanding that if we continue to do this without providing proper resources that people will willingly accept, housing solutions that people will willingly accept, all we're doing is causing harm to them. Uh, and this is medically true. We know that when we evict people from their encampments, they are far more at risk of overdose, of death, of being disconnected from their workers, uh, from the people they're connected to and the services that they're connected to that keep them well. So it's not a strategy that is in the interest of human rights by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and it is not in the interest of the public good. So again, if people are on this land, public land, instead of policing them, what we need to do is actually provide them with the resources that support the right to life. Um, that is something that we could do in public parks. Why can't we have things like Wi-Fi available in a public park? Why can't we have things like running water bathrooms that are open all the time that actually work. Harm reduction, why can't we actually do these things when we know that from an evidence-based perspective, they are things that work and again, support that right to life. So again, I think we need to rethink what public space actually means and what we can actually achieve in that space. And I'd like to see a mayor, not myself, but somebody uh, who kind of understands this basic premise. Um, on the policing part as well, uh, I think we, we understand that, and we just recently seen that somebody was killed. Uh, in an interaction with police because they're experiencing crisis. This needs to stop. We cannot have police attending to people who are experiencing crisis. This should actually never happen at all. This is a medical situation and to be sending in enforcement in these situations is fundamentally wrong. Uh, we need to expand and make permanent the mobile crisis response pilots and expand them to be all over the city, understanding that these are people who know what they're doing, know how to support people in crisis, I'm someone who has been doing crisis work for quite a long time. Uh, and I've even interacted uh, or interjected myself in situations where police were involved 
didn't know how to handle it. I had to get in between them and the person who was experiencing distress. And frankly, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't done that because they did not know how to deescalate the situation. And even if they did, when people see someone in a uniform, that's not going to make you feel calm. If I see someone in a uniform, that's not going to make me feel calm and I'm not doing anything. Uh, so if you're experiencing crisis, it's actually inevitably going to escalate the situation, uh, which can never, frankly, end well. Um, I also want to kind of stress, you know, before we even, I'm talking about encampments, I'm talking about housing, but I'm also going to talk a little bit about our shelter system, uh, which is an incredibly dire state. We don't have enough space. We have between 10 and 18,000 people who are unhoused in the city, and yet we have 9,000 spaces at best. Uh, we also don't have 24-7 respites for people to come indoors at all times of the day. Uh, so we have people who are effectively stranded, and we've seen that people are now sheltering on the TTC. So we need to actually increase shelter space, yes, uh, and make sure that we actually make, uh, meet our own bylaws of keeping it capped at 90% capacity at all times. But beyond even having the space, something that people really don't want to talk about, and I, I can't understand why, is why people don't have control over shelter space who are actively residing there. It's not meant to be carceral. They're not in jail. They're using an emergency service and they have a right to be able to say, this is what I need in this space to actually feel safe. So something I would do would be to create a committee of some kind of current and former residents of the shelter system to have meaningful input and control that is listened to uh, and actually enacted in the shelter system to make sure that it actually makes sense and is truly safe according to their needs. So. I'm going to stop there because I think I've gone over five minutes. I could go into bail reform. I could go into mandatory treatment. I'll just say no to those things. That would be on my platform. And I'll hand it over to the next person. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Thank you so much, Diana. Awesome passion. Ian, you're up next. Uh, thanks, Michael. I'm... Uh... I'm going to start where Diana started and say the same thing. I don't want this job either. Uh, and uh, it, this is a really tough job, and it's a really tough job at a, at a very difficult time for this city. I'm very keen to support whoever becomes mayor of this city because they have a, they're up against a very big thing. So on, on the question of housing platform, I have four points, I guess. And I'd actually start with the fact that I, I would make it clear that housing is my number one priority. So this isn't just that I have a housing platform with some priorities in it. As a mayoral candidate, I would say housing for the next four years will be my number one priority. Uh, I'm gonna come back to why in a second, but that's the first thing. The second thing is I would actually embrace John Tory's Housing Action Plan 2023. That was something he put out in December. You can give it a new name if you want. Uh, I'll come back to kind of why it's important to embrace that, but I would pick up on where the former mayor has left off and embrace that action plan. Uh, the third thing, uh, and we talked a bit about money, Andrew made reference to it, uh, as did Diana. Uh, I would commit to a housing positive 
tax and revenue strategy. Again, I'm going to come back to that and explain it. And the, the last and final is I would really pay attention to the, the what can we do and change within the bureaucracy, within city staff who are on the hook for delivering housing. Uh, and I want to come back to that as well. So the first one, saying that I'd make housing my mayoral platform, my number one priority, is really because, in the, you know, when you think about it, in the same way that when there's a car accident, you know, and there's, you know, the person's not breathing and they're not, their heart isn't beating and they've got a broken leg and they're bleeding from their, from a head wound and they're bleeding and, and they've got burn wounds and abrasions. You still have the question of where do you start? And the answer in that question is you start by, by their heart. So those of us who learn CPR, it's, it's, it's the chest compressions first, get the heart beating because the heart is connected to everything else. I would contend that housing lies at the heart of all of the issues that are facing this city. My two colleagues have talked about how it lies at the heart of the social issues. You know, how it does, it does lie behind the violence in the subways. I would suspect if you ask the folks that are behind the violence, ask them about their housing situation. Ask them about the sense of alienation that's happened because of their housing situation. Uh, we've talked about the connection to mental health. You know, and mental health then connects to policing. We think we need more policing because we've got a rise in mental health uh, conditions that we're not responding to correctly. We have a rise in mental health conditions in part because of the incredible stress of people who either don't have a home or have a home that is compromising their mental and physical health. Uh, the food bank, 69% of food bank users are uh, spending more than 50% of all of their income on housing. Um, one in five food bank users is spending all of their income on housing. So housing lies behind the social concerns we have with our city, but it also lies behind our ability to attract and retain the workforce that we need to make the city work, whether it's police, teachers, healthcare professionals, uh, delivery, uh, delivery folks, uh, laborers, uh, top talent that the tech firms are trying to bring in. If we cannot attract and retain that talent, we continue to lose ground on the prosperity, the vitality, the competitiveness of this city, which affects everyone. So number one, housing would be my mayoral platform uh, and with a desire for the next four years of help all of the voters and the taxpayers understand this is why housing has to come first. Um, the second I said I'd embrace uh, John Tory's uh, Housing Action Plan 2023, he put that out in December. It was a really thoughtfully piece of, uh, thoughtfully done kind of framework for what do we have to do. It addressed what are the things we have to change in more permissive zoning so that we can build all kinds of the housing we need, market and below market. And it specifically had a number of areas of what we need to address with housing now, as my colleagues have talked about, with multi-tenant housing, with the other, with intensification in our social housing sites. How do we really get at the, at getting us the affordable housing we need? So there were a number of things in that plan that are the place I believe to start and accelerate as opposed to coming in as a new broom and saying, I need a blank piece of paper to say what to do with housing. That's number two. Number three is I said I'd commit to a, uh, a housing positive tax and revenue uh, strategy. And I'd urge the feds and the province to do the same. You know, so many of our, our tax structures, our fee structures have inadvertently uh, disadvantaged 
uh, 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 people who don't yet have the housing they need. And they've advantaged people like me who bought that home in the 90s who have the housing, more than the housing that I need. And so there's a whole number of pieces around the balance between our property taxes and our development charges. The way with the choices we make when we sell surplus government land, whether it's the Housing Now sites or provincial sites, uh, the way we use HST on, on homes. There's, there are so many levers within how governments are taxing uh, and uh, causing fees in our money that I would, as mayor, want to bring that housing lens to that, urge my budget chief, urge my budget committee. Every time we have a conversation that involves money with ourselves, with the province, with the feds, we need to bring a housing lens to it to say, will it lead us to the outcomes today and in the future that we want and need? And then the final part I said is about city staff. Um, I, I, uh, my heart goes out to uh, city staff in the city planning departments, in the housing secretariat, in the building uh, and engineering departments. They have an incredibly heavy load. Um, uh, and in spite of how hard they work, we have as a city and region have the dubious distinction at being one of the slowest places to get anything built in, uh, in, in the nation and in the continent. And so I think in support of our, our staff who are truly working hard to get housing, the right kind of housing built, that's where I'd be committed to bringing in some outside resources to really do some lean process work on why is it taking us so long to get things approved? And importantly, what can we do to change the culture so that our staff are not having to spend so much time worrying about they've covered every box, they've managed every risk, they've dealt with every aspect of what could go wrong, but instead they're being given permission to keep things moving forward more quickly when it comes to delivering the housing that the residents of this city today and the residents that are being born and are coming need in the future. So that would be my, uh, my uh, list of four things of what my platform would be as mayor. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aim. John? Thank you for letting me go last, Michael. I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm pumped to get to talk about this uh, as though I'm running for mayor, but I'm not. So I, I do want to just take a moment to say if you're one of the 102 people who have put their hat in the ring, uh, my hat's off to you uh, because it is a brave thing to do. And, uh, and, and I'm glad you're, you're, you're doing it. Uh, if I were running for mayor, I, I would start with the statement that housing is a human right, not not to be super cool about it, but largely for the, the reasons that Ian has articulated. I think you have to signal that housing is your prime objective here. And that means that when there's a choice to be maybe two, two things that are good, that you're going to choose housing. That might be housing over a park. It might be housing over lower taxes. It might be housing over something else. Uh, but you're going to treat it as an, if you're going to treat it as a number one priority because it's in crisis, that means making difficult decisions. And it's usually cast as housing versus something not good. But when it's it's really the competition when there's two good things and you're going to choose housing and that's that's the most important signal i would send and if i had to stop after 30 seconds that would it would be uh, the second thing i would do is look for very specific mechanisms to empower nonprofits and co-ops to retain existing housing units and to uh convert and build where they where they where they can 
I completely agree with the with what Diana had to say earlier about Mira. It's a it's a good program. It's proving its worth, and it should be doubled because it is. There's no comparison between the cost of filling in an equity gap between. Um, a sale price to a nonprofit and to a private player as there is to create a new unit from scratch. It's not a comparable number. What's more, I would add a, uh, another feature to it, which would be a revolving deposit fund. So a nonprofit can put land under contract just as quickly as a private sector guy can. The only criteria, one criteria is a commercially normal uh, condition. So you have a chance to poke the tire just like the private guys do. I wanna put nonprofits and co-ops on the same level. And in addition to that, if you're a tenant group and you want to buy your own building and want to form a co-op, that program will support you too. So we, we do actually have an example of that going on now. It's a really interesting thing to be able to, to, be able to support. Nonprofits have to support themselves when they do these, when they do, uh, when they operate buildings by having a mix of market and affordable rentals, often within the same building. So I'm going to commit to wiping out property taxes as long as you're 50 50 or better on the affordable side off both the market and the affordable units. And I don't care whether it's kept in that same building. What I care about here is putting more equity in the hands of nonprofits so they continue to do this kind of thing or generate additional uh, affordability. Like Andrew, I'm interested in deeper affordability than just the 80% of average market rent. And so we'll apply some rules around that as well. And finally, because I want to be specific about things that the municipality can do on its own for a nonprofit acquisition, we're also going to take away the municipal land transfer tax. But do that so that they can compete with the private sector, and that'll help even the, even the playing field. Second thing, a specific thing on city sites, we are going to, I call this one, leave no stone unexcavated. So we will go for the, the, the moon on housing on city sites, and that means making hard decisions. So if, if we have an irrational site because there's some housing next door and I have to expropriate six houses to make it work as a rational site and create more housing, then that's what we're going to do. Other mayors will have expropriated to create subways. I'm going to be willing to expropriate to create housing where it makes sense. Uh, and if that means saying that there aren't going to be full replacement of the TPA parking that's right there, then so be it as well. Because if I add parking at forty or fifty thousand dollars a stall, it makes it all the more difficult for whoever is building to achieve affordable levels. Um, third, the private sector. I have no fear of having the private sector help out. So to the once, but once the once the we make a deal with the private sector in terms of affordability and commitment, then that is what we will stick to. If we're going to engage the private sector, then predictability is critical. Um, using private sector landlords is also important. So we we'd like to introduce uh, new portable rents ups uh, in order to relieve pressure from the shelter system and move people into permanent housing. Now that will depend on individuals as to whether you're moving into independent living or into a more supportive community. And yes, that would have to be supported either through other forms of either through raising property taxes, because that's the main avenue for uh, municipal municipalities to raise money or by looking to the feds uh, uh, to assist. Which brings me to the next point, which is, as the mayor of Toronto, that I am being elected on the strength of two million eligible voters. And even if a quarter of them show up, then I've been elected by about five times the number of voters that any member of the provincial legislature is being elected by. And I'm not going to be shy to tell people what I think is in the interest of the city of Toronto and what should change 
at the at the provincial and federal levels and that includes additional money because i do not think that you can solve this problem on fancy words like partnering and so on money is necessary it's critical and because it's a pet peeve of mine that I've talked about three times on this broadcast already, I would be telling them, do not eliminate the rental replacement programs that keep affordable housing in geographically diverse parts of the city. My last one, which is very similar to, to what Ian had to say, we have to hire more planners, we have to hire more planners. And if we have to pay planners more to make this a good place to work and to have a full career option through being a planner at the city of Toronto and give planners and, and city officials back a little mojo, then let's do that. And I think part of that comes from having a mayor who's willing to take responsibility for the fact that putting housing first and making it go fast is gonna yield some mistakes along the way. That's normal, that's human, and that is not a firing offense in my administration, Michael. And with that, I will conclude and hope that you will all vote for me if I ever actually, well, I'm not actually going to run. So there you go. That's my view. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you all. All excellent points. Um, I mean, you can have one-on-one -on -one conversations with all of you just around uh, all the different pieces that you brought forward. Uh, and I think if candidates are listening, some great things to consider uh, in moving uh, the great city of Toronto forward. Now, uh, I think we probably all learned something or have questions or, or want someone to expand on something or are interested, I think. And if you do, I'd like to give you some time to do that. So we're going to start with uh, Diana uh, with any questions or, or follow-ups, uh, Andrew, John, and then we'll end with you. I... Oh. <laughs> mm. Anything that stood out to you or you say, I really like that idea, uh, can you expand more on it? Anything like that? I mean, I, I like that Andrew's platform is really just about investing in people. And I think that's always a missing piece. And certainly when we talk about housing and homelessness, we have this kind of tendency to, to, to really kind of point to the niggling details uh, and to things like zoning, for example, uh, without prioritizing or centering again, like, who is at the center of all of this, really? It's it's people. Uh, and we need to consider them first and foremost. And then housing is an aspect of that. But really, we have to look broadly at all of the needs that they have, um, which are, quite frankly, pretty pretty missing at this point in our society. John's platform, I like John's platform. Uh, and there's a lot of pieces there that I didn't touch on that I absolutely agree with. Um, rent sups, absolutely. Uh, I think you're right. Like We can't at this point, and certainly we just don't have the ability to create the units that are needed right now from scratch or even through acquisition programs. So we need to look to the private market. Uh, and as a short-term solution, I don't think this is a permanent solution by any stretch. The goal should be that everyone has housing that they can afford without needing something like a rent supplement. Uh, of course, we're never going to get there uh, unless we have things like rent control actually um, put into place, vacancy control, but also uh, on all units that are built after November 15th, 2018. Uh, but we do need to actually expand uh, at the city level rent supplements. Right now, we're relying on the COB. The COB expires in six years. Uh, it, the funding for it is also not consistent by any stretch of the imagination. So we've seen significantly less uh, investments this year uh, in the Canada Ontario housing benefit, which is going to leave a lot of people, quite frankly, high and dry. Uh, and we don't have anything to supply them with at the city level. So that's a huge piece that I think uh, really needs to be invested in as well. Um, I guess nobody really touched on land trusts so much. Um, we'll just kind of group them into, John, you talked about a lot about uh, co-ops, so we do need to, I mean, again, we have to look at other orders of government and how to make this more feasible. Um, but I think land trusts, 
my cat just jumped and did that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I, I think land trusts are also a good solution to uh, maintaining affordability. Um, so if we're looking at, again, expanding a program like Mira acquisition programs, then we can be partnering with land trusts, for example, to make sure that this happens. And they're very small scale at the moment, but it's something that can be scaled up significantly. I don't know. Yeah, no, uh, great. Fantastic. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, no, I'll jump in off that point. And I, don't, I don't really want to challenge anything. I want to congratulate everybody for these amazing platforms. I think if we all put the platforms together and just put a shadow puppet up, we'd probably win. Uh, but, you know, that's a different story. But for me, I, I think I think there's an aspect of communication that we, we would want to put in our platforms. So some very clear and distinct pieces around, you know, and, I, and I, I'll say the word, it's an imbiism, right? And I think that's where we've been stuck. We've been stuck at, you know, and, and finally, Toronto just passed laws that says, you know, we're going to we're going to try to get past that with, you know, with, with the rules. But forever and ever, we see where there's there's availability of land for, for building and for, and for expansion. But, you know, for whatever reason, years over years over years, we're not getting to those places. And there's always this 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 known um, or, 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 or said um, difference in, in where certain people should live. And, and, and you got to stop that. And I think there's there's something in this campaign that's got to go down to communication and talking to general public interest. And, you know, there's a report that just came up the other day around the fact that there is no issue around mixed use communities and, 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 and mixed mixed income communities. Uh, there is no issue. I mean, and, and I look at, you know, Regent Park is a shining example of, of what I grew up in. The Regent Park I grew up in was two buildings and nobody could go in there. And I remember going there as a youth. You know, it was almost like there was gatekeepers. You couldn't get in. Like you'd walk in there. Some people are like, well, who are you here to see and why are you here? And now I can, you know, you go, you go to the Wendy's, you can go to the, I think it's a 7-Eleven there, and everything's open and everything's nice and cool. But that's an example of, 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 of recreating the mixed use and all the, and all the rest. And there's challenges with that sort of gentrification, but I, I think people need to understand that there's nothing bad around creating mixed income and mixed use communities so that everybody can live and thrive. And, you know, I, I, where I grew up, it was very noticeably community housing. It's a big brown building. Now it's, I think it's, nicely stuckled and everything else but we all need the brown buildings with the white stripes on every floor with community housing or terry housing buildings right i think there's an aspect of communication that can go in there the second thing i want to touch on and he, you mentioned it as well is the shifting of the tax notion in toronto like i i used to my kids used to play like recreational and competitive sports and every time i go to your neighborhood michael for example up in you know in Newmarket up there I'd be amazed by the, the facilities. I'm like, oh my goodness, like I play in a rinky dink, you know, hundred year old arena in Toronto and we go up, you know, 45 minutes out of town and, you know, state of the art, you got stalls, you got multiplexes, you know, and parents could actually, you know, have a, have a beverage while watching their kids play. You couldn't do that in my arena because they were so old and there was no investment. And I think there's this notion for every politician that says, you know, taxation is bad. And when we just talked about the, the 5% tax increase in Toronto the other day, I did the math on that for me, and it was like a couple hundred bucks. Like, let's just get over ourselves and ensure we're investing back into what we want to see for our families, our communities, and everybody else. So I think, you know, the notions of, and, and, and it's really around communication and really framing the issue. I think the notion forever was taxing is bad. So people just buy no more taxes and we'll, step, we'll stick there. It, no, communicate to what that is. Again, we're back to investing. You'll always find money for what you want, whether it's you know a pair of shoes or whether it's a home or whether it's stuff for your family. You'll find that money, but you got to make that communication clear as to why it's good. So I think you know the notion of where the housing is being built and why it's being built and who it's for 
these are all actually good news stories for a better society and a better Toronto. And the other side of it is that we all have to pitch in and it's not going to cost you that much. You know, going out for dinner in Toronto is not cheap. I think we could all probably go out for dinner on a Friday night and spend exactly our tax increase. So think about it that way. And if you were to do that, you know, even once a quarter, but not go out for dinner once a quarter, you're, you're investing in a, in a very bright future for a lot of people in Toronto. And again, I will, I will, I'll leave here and I'll pass it on, but we have a whole bunch of people coming into this country. We have an, an immigration policy that we're investing in half a million new Canadians. And a lot of them are going to land in major metropolitan cities. And a lot of them are going to land in Toronto to do a lot of the things we're talking about now, which is build up the city, build the infrastructure, help the labor force. It's got to be good for them as well, or else this thing is going to just spiral out of control to a place where I have no idea what it's going to look like for everybody who's going to be here in the next decade. So forget about, you know, this mayoral campaign. I'm looking at it generationally is that we have kind of one shot work, you know, to, to quote Dr. Strange, we're in the end game here. We gotta we gotta make the right choice. So I'll leave it there and we'll pass it on. That's for all my my superhero geeks out there. Can I can I just pick up on something that Andrew sure. I think is a really important point? It, mixed use and uh, mixed income is great. It's great. And even from the perspective of people who are living in poverty, who are living unhoused, people don't want to be ghettoized. And that's what happens. Uh, it doesn't create thriving communities. It warehouses people. So absolutely, we have to have uh, mixed income communities and consider that when we're building housing as well. So thank you for bringing that up. It's a good lead because I know someone who's, who had a lot to do with some great mixed use developments and he's speaking to us next. John, any thoughts or questions uh, around that uh, round of platforms? Well, first of all, I, I, I loved hearing hearing them all. I can't believe Andrew just used a Doctor Strange reference, particularly when the odds of that particular reference were so low. And I like to think the odds of, of solving this are higher than that. I I will say this, I, I loved that um, Ian's talking about uh, not reinventing the wheel. Because while I, I totally enjoyed um, the shtick of being a mayoral candidate for five straight minutes, um, most of what we've been talking about, they're not actually, it's not actually new. It's just almost like forgotten. And uh, many times candidates just don't articulate it in a way that you really see the actual point that is being made because they're shy about making that commitment. And my advice to anybody listening is, is here's an election where you can win on being bold because there are so many people that you won't need as many votes as you might otherwise need. So be bold. I also glossed over a little bit the the ownership piece, which made me forget the promise I put in to sway Ian to vote for me, which is that I would use municipal powers to secure long-term affordable ownership options so that she doesn't have to rely on option agreements and other legal things that she has to pay guys like me fees to tell that, you know, have their own sets of turns and nuances but the municipality can deal with that and inside inside private development and by the way when i say private one thing about being a lawyer is you tend to think differently about what these words are nonprofits who are not owned by the government are actually part of the private sector so the the when we talk really about that we tend to mean for-profit development there's tons of opportunity for that kind of stuff and it fits really well into condo land and into other kinds of developments where you can have homes which are ownership and affordable and can have different structures within them ranging from 
uh, wealth building, single generation affordable ownership to sort of longer term holds. And even though the criticism is that longer term affordability doesn't lead to as much wealth generation, it still leads to security of tenure and security of tenure matters. So I think all those things are, are there too. And I, and I do think there is there's a, a role for the for-profit development community to play in that regard, but it does need, you know, to, to your point, the, the success, some of the success at region had to do with some pretty challenging and uh, straight up negotiations with the private partner there, which led to a great result once once interests were clear and aligned. So uh, and with that, I'll, I'll leave it, but there, there is room for leadership at a, at a mayoral level for that kind of big picture thinking on housing, particularly imagine when a mayor says that kind of stuff, what it does to the planning department or what it does to the people in the housing secretary in terms of their freedom to be creative when they're not thinking that if they make a mistake or one thing doesn't work, that it's, it's, it's a big problem for them. No, we know there's going to have to be experimentation to make this make this go. So I think there's room, a lot of room for growth there and a lot of room for leadership in the mayoral office. Thank you, John. And Ian, the last word. Oh, thank you. And thank you, Michael, for the conversation and, and to my colleagues for all the the thoughtful commentary. Um, I think I'm uh, going to kind of pull pull the threads of three themes I've been hearing as we've been talking. And so the first was, you know, and John, you know, I think put the spotlight on the word in your opening comments, which is money. Right. And then Andrew came back and repeated it. Um, this we have a we have such a significant problem in this city, in this region now, and, it, and fixing it won't come cheap. Um, and, and it's 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 incredibly important for our mayor to be uh, honest about that, honest and open eyed about it. Uh, John made reference to developers. I think we all have the private sector developers. They can and should be uh, part of this solution. Um, but they, that takes money to engage them as part of the solution because their investors, you know, need to have the same return on those affordable homes as they're getting on the market homes or otherwise they won't invest. So these are some of the harsh realities of this takes a lot of money and we've fallen into, I think, a pattern over the last few years at all levels of government. The governments talk about the housing problem because everyone knows it's there. So if you're a politician, you want to talk about it. But when it comes to actual action, there still is a tendency to do things that feel cheaper and easier. And, and our, our time for cheaper and easier uh, is over. Having said that, it leads to, and, and uh, I'm again going to thread things that I was hearing from John and Andrew, choice. You know, one of you used the term choose housing. Uh, so this is absolutely a moment to choose housing to say, yes, there's, an, there's not an infinite amount of funds. There's a finite amount of funds. We need, when push comes to shove, to choose housing. And that's both funds today, but funds in the future. When we sell land, we need to choose housing and not just look to capitalize on the market gain on land that we're selling. When we expropriate, as John talked about, we need to do so in a way that we can still choose a housing outcome. So I think that's the second theme. So first, there's a sad reality of money and everybody needs to be honest about it. The second is there, we need to choose housing. Uh, and the third comes back to, um, I think a number of people said it, but Andrew, I was listening to your comments earlier on. The number of times you used the word thrive, um, I lost count. And I think it was incredibly meaningful there because Andrew kept bringing us back to this, this, you, I wrote it down. You said so that everyone can thrive. 
so that everyone can thrive. Like that is the objective. And that's an objective that leads to a better, uh, better life for everyone, not just lower income folks, higher income folks, you get a better life. When you get a better city, your grandchildren get a better city. You can find a, 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 a daycare provider for your child when you're well off, but you're in a city where everyone can thrive. You can find someone to take care of you when you're aging, if personal service workers can afford to live here. You'll like our parks because the lawns get mowed. You'll, this is, we can build a better city when we focus on making the choices around housing so that everyone can thrive. Awesome, well said, and, and a great way to round this up. Uh, thank you all. Uh, what a great conversation, great themes. Um, uh, and, and very solution-based, which I loved. Uh, recently, I was talking with the mayor of Newmarket, John Taylor. His father, Tom Taylor, was uh, mayor for a long time. And he said, his dad once said, if you're not pissing off almost half of the population, then you're probably not doing the right things. And so what he was saying there is, you need to make tough decisions and, and not just do the popular thing, but do the right things. I heard that through this, that you've, you've got to push forward. You've got to leave room for mistakes. Um, we, we need some tough actions, and you all talked about that. Now, I want to give you a chance. You're all doing impactful and important work. Um, you're educating and creating awareness uh, throughout. Um, you can't really turn on television without seeing Diana speaking so wisely and powerfully uh, as an advocate, which is awesome. So I want to just go around and let people know where they can see more or learn more uh, about you or your organization um, we are going to start with, you know what, we'll start with E because she was last last time. Then we'll go to John, Diana, and then Andrew. Thanks very much, Michael. So at Habitat for Humanity, GTA, uh, we keep we keep adapting and changing to this very challenging market, but it is always about having helping uh, the working families in the city have alternative pathways to have a home that they own and a means of building that, some of that equity for generational change. So that's what we do here throughout the GTA, and uh, more can be learned at our website at habitatgta.ca. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for us. At uh, it's John Fox. We have. Um... A housing group at Robbins Appleby, and it's one of the only ones in, in the city. And one of the things we do is help nonprofits and co-ops and tenants navigate through the legal complexities of buying and developing. And uh, and we also help um, sector organizations sometimes in understanding the impacts of changes of legislation on co-ops and so on. So if that's something which is of interest to you, you can find us on our website at robapp.com, and uh, or you can. Drop me an email at jfox at robapp.com. Uh, well, I've actually taken a little bit of a shift in my career. So I was working frontline as a crisis response worker at All Saints at Dundas and Sherburne. Uh, absolutely would love people to check them out uh, and to support their services. Um, my funding ran out. So for those of us who work frontline, who are a bit younger, who aren't lawyers and CEOs, respectfully, we don't make a lot of money uh, and we are in precarious housing situations ourselves. So I had to take a bit of a shift. Oddly, I'm working at Queens Park. Um, not sure I like it. Uh, definitely miss the frontline and I, I hope to return in the near future. Um, but 
you can visit my link tree. There's a lot of my activism work that's there. Again, look into All Saints. I have a lot of amazing colleagues who are fighting every single day out on the street to make sure that our, the people that we care about stay alive, let alone uh, find housing, but literally are kept alive. So friends like Lorraine Lamb, I urge you to check out her work, um, Greg Cook, um, Zoe Dodd, these are people who are doing amazing stuff every single day that goes unheralded uh, and in my opinion is some of the hardest work there that there is. So um, if not me, please support my colleagues. Uh, and, and for me, I, I'm with the Ontario Nonprofit Housing Association. We advocate for nonprofits and community housing providers across the province. Um, and again, we're looking for that deep affordability. You know, funny enough, a few months ago and maybe a year ago, we were just talking about affordable housing in general. And now we have to make a differentiation between what, what is truly affordable and what's deeply affordable and what's going to get to that place. And I'll say it again, Ian, where everybody thrives, right? So that's really what our mandate is at, at, at ONFA and our acronym is ONPHA. Uh, you can reach us at onpha.on.ca. That's our website. But we're doing a lot of great work with respect to advocacy and ensuring the sector is, you know, administratively and professionally right to keep moving on for, for several generations. I know we're in a 10 year iteration of change where there's a lot of new legislation and new regulations coming to front, but we're looking at the new horizon and we're looking at the next 30, 40, 50 years. But ultimately, our mandate is to ensure that, you know, you know, Ontarians have a safe, you know, decent, respectful place to live uh, and, and in communities where they can thrive. So. That's what we do and that's what I'm doing. And, and I, as I said at the, at the onset, I'm not going to stop doing it. This is where I'm going to end my career. So loving what I'm doing. Awesome. Well, thank you all. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you all for your time today, your wisdom. And thanks for being incredible impact and change makers, not only in our community, but in our country. Uh, I, I know at times it, it can be really, really tough and frustrating work. Uh, Diana, it, you know, it, it makes me sad to hear that as a young person, it is so tough to be such a change maker that you are and a powerful force, but yet we make it tough for you. Um, but I appreciate everything and all the things that you're all doing uh, in this battle. We are in a housing crisis. We need big and powerful steps moving forward, and you're helping to make that happen. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thanks thank so you. much, and everybody vote. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.